The 4% rule actually is the strategy that creates the most sequence risk because you never adjust your spending based on how your portfolio is doing. Being flexible helps a lot. If you can just reduce your spending a little bit when markets aren't doing as, as well as you hoped, that helps you avoid selling assets at a loss and that helps manage sequence risk. And that allows you to use a higher spending rate at the beginning of retirement than otherwise. So with some degree of flexibility there, whether it's just changing your spending level or having some sort of buffer asset to draw from, yeah, you can be more comfortable. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, we continue our interview from a few weeks ago with retirement researcher Dr. Wade Fowl. This time, exploring the 4% rule for retirement withdrawals. Just how much can you really spend in retirement? Plus, how a risk-filled burrito can earn you up to 11% on your money. Joe and Big Al take on Dave Ramsey's advice to pay off debt before saving for retirement, and they loudly debate the merits of real estate versus bonds in a portfolio. Also, IRA planning for the rest of 2018 that can save you big with the IRA in taxes, that is. And you got to tell mom and dad or grandma and grandpa about using their RMDs for some QCDs. Trust me on this. Finally, if you're able to work remotely, you might want to move to Vermont and lifestyles of the middle class in a brand new segment called Where Does Big Al's Wife Ann's Family Live? Now here are Joe Anderson, CFP and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Hey, do you ever get Kiplinger? Kip- Kiplinger? Kiplinger. <laughs> We always say Kiplinger. Kip- we were just correct. Kiplinger. Kiplinger. I still like. I still like Kiplinger. I think that sounds better. I, I do too. <laughs> I'm gonna go with that. <laughs> you ever read that uh, magazine? I've seen it. Yeah. So I got this magazine in the mail. Earn up to 11 percent on your money. Well, that's pretty good. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would get get my attention. <laughs> so here's our top ways to boost your income. Okay. So, now, this is this, the problem with this the one, Is this the one that has 35 ways to boost your income? That's what it says, our top 35 oh, yeah, ways to go. boost your income. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, of course, I'm curious. I would like to boost my income. Yeah, to 11%. I would li- what are you earning right now? Probably six. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> because, a little bit more. Because you have a globally diversified portfolio. I do. I don't have any bonds, though, because I have real estate. <laughs> Stay tuned for this argument. We're gonna, yeah, let's, yeah, let's get into that later. <laughs> um... Here, and me... your house doesn't count. Oh, okay. So right here, Alan, it says how to earn up to 11%. We found 35 ways. So I'm like, okay, well, okay. that sounds pretty good. Well, then I sure. get into it, and then the first thing was like short-term accounts, 1% to 2%. I'm like, well, that's how, not how 11. 11. How do I get 11? That, you know, you well, add 10 to 1. So, yeah, so I'm like, okay, that's not 11. So I, Well, I, maybe it's starting small to big. I keep reading. Muni Next bonds? Thing, muni bonds, 2 to 3%. Getting closer. <laughs> Getting closer. That's not 11, you're damn not, it. You're not warm yet. Investment-grade bonds, three to four. Wow. Isn't a short-term bond could be an investment-grade? I guess, yeah. So this, so this would be like a mid-term investment-grade? I'm grade? thinking this is even maybe a little bit longer. Maybe. So Or maybe a total bond market maybe fund? To, yeah, that has blends of everything. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Um, foreign bonds, three to 5%. Um, it, I'm just reading this from the magazine. Don't quote me on this compliance. <laughs> right? you're, you're giving I'm not guaranteeing any type of returns. This is what Kip, Kiplinger yeah. is, is is guaranteeing you. High yield bonds, three to six percent. Okay. okay, also known as junk bonds. Junk bonds, 
Um, real estate investment trusts. Now we're getting into some fun stuff. Four to nine percent. Yeah, four to nine percent. Just lock up your money forever and pay a big fat commission, um, and then you get four to nine yeah. percent. But you don't know that four to nine percent is probably return of your own capital. Yeah, usually. Yeah, usually the ones I've seen are six percent, but in some cases that's exactly what's going on. Now out. we're getting into some other good stuff. How about some closed end funds? Oh boy. Oh yeah. Let's put some now, leverage. Now you got some high commission products. <laughs> no. So the, your your broker would Let, love to sell you that let's one. Let's get some leverage inside a mutual fund that you have zero transparency. Um, <laughs> Is that what it says? Yeah, that's what it says. <laughs> if you like zero transparency <laughs> and leverage, if you don't know what leverage is, then you should not be buying closed-end funds. Uh, and then uh, finally, our master limited partnerships, 8 okay. to 11. 8 to 11. That's huh. a broad term, master limited partnership. MLPs. All right. Oh, boy. Those are pretty popular until they blew up. <laughs> <laughs> so we could cherry pick. I mean, who's the author of this? Well, thing? and though it depends. That, I mean, MLP can be almost anything. Depends could, what they invest. I in. I guess it could be. Well, it's a master and, limited partnership, right? Right. So it could be gas. It could be it, a family business, real estate. <laughs> yeah, it could be uh, Joe's garage that you talk about sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Well, Green Plains Partner. That's an MLP of a brokerage firm. Uh, they like that, which owns. In operage storage tanks. So let me ask you a question: Have you ever seen anyone put money into a master limited partnership and lose everything they invested? Not everything, just about everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have. I've seen them <laughs> lose every penny. <laughs> I have not seen them perform all that great. Yeah, it depends. It, it depends. Like now, if you if you did an MLP in a, and bought into real estate in let's say two thousand one, for example, then and you sold out in two thousand six, you did great. You did great. But, if you but did, I, I think there's it, there's good investments, bad investments. Right. I'm not saying MLPs are awful or bad. It's you just have to take a look at the wrapper, understand what you're investing in. Yeah, because MLP is a wrapper. So it's it's what's the investment? What's, what's inside of it? Yeah, right. You know what I mean? If you have a burrito with rotten stuff in it, that's not going to be very good. Or you could have a California <laughs> burrito from you know the Manador right by my house. It's delicious. French fries. Yes. Junk bonds, closed-end funds, REITs, and MLPs. Now there's a financial burrito full of indigestion. Find out what rate of return you need to be getting from your portfolio and how to get it without all the risk and lack of transparency and bad gas. If you're in Southern California or visiting soon, sign up for one of our two-day retirement courses or learn financial strategies for turbulent times at our free monthly Lunch and Learn events in San Diego. Visit the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to sign up now. For personalized help, sign up for a free two-meeting financial assessment with a certified financial planner from Pure Financial Advisors. Get the tools and confidence you need to prepare for a successful retirement. Sign up for our two-day retirement courses, a Lunch and Learn, or a free financial assessment at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Welcome back to the show. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson, Big Al, hanging out here, uh, talking to Dr. Wade Fow. Check him out at retirementresearcher.com. Wait, let's talk about your new book, How Much Can I Spend in Retirement? So there's multiple ways that I think people can create income. Let's just talk high level of what you believe is some of the pitfalls that, that people are facing as they, 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 they approach retirement in regards to, A, how much do they need and how much can they spend and what are some appropriate ways they should look at you know coming up with a spending plan or, or a retirement income plan for a, a lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so this book, How Much Can I Spend in Retirement, it's specifically on the question of investments with an investment portfolio. What's the safe spending rate? And you know how much do you need then to be able to sustain your retirement? And the general rule of thumb that 
you're quickly going to run across as soon as you start looking about retirement is the 4% rule that you can spend 4% of your investment portfolio and then not run out of money in retirement. And so if you believe in the 4% rule, the amount you would need to save is just however much you want to spend divided by 4%, which is then 25 times whatever you want to spend. So if you want to spend $40,000 to keep things simple, 25 times that gets you to a million dollars. Well, 4% of a million dollars is $40,000. And that's the very basic way of figuring out how much you can spend in retirement. Now that there's a lot of further discussion to, to go from there. And that's what the book is, is really about. It's digging into all the assumptions that go into the 4% rule and explaining why as you change these assumptions, for some reasons, maybe the spending number should be even less than 4%, but for other reasons, it could potentially be bigger than 4%. And then how to think about, you know, putting all that together into figuring out what's a reasonable spending rate for your retirement from your investment portfolio. So Wade, the, the 4% rule has been around for a long time. What are factors that some people may should only spend 3%, some people could probably spend 5%. What are some factors to think about? Yeah, what's behind that whole 4% rule? What are the assumptions mm-hmm. and that, that, you know, that why 4%? Okay, so yeah, some of the, the key assumptions behind it are, it's assuming you're going to hold 50 to 75% stocks in retirement, throughout retirement. So it's a pretty aggressive stock allocation. And if you start going less than that, you're looking at a number less than 4%. Um, it's assuming specifically that your retirement will last for 30 years. If your retirement's longer than that, or if you're an early retiree in particular, the 4% rule is never meant to apply. It should be less. But if you're already, say, 80 years old, you could probably be spending it higher than 4% because 30 years is, you probably don't have to worry about lasting that long and, and that sort of thing. It assumes you always want to adjust your spending for inflation, the consumer price index, every year of your retirement. A lot of people may find that they don't need to do that, and so they might potentially spend a little more. Um, it, but it does assume you earn the underlying market returns, and if you're underperforming the market for whatever reason, that also speaks against the 4% rule that you should probably be considering something less. Though at the same time, the 4% rule is based on just two simple asset classes, large capitalization, like big company U.S. stocks and intermediate term, about five-year maturity U.S. government bonds. And if you build a more diversified investment portfolio, that could be a justification to use more than 4%. It's also based on U.S. historical data, which is really where I got my start of the, the basic ideas. If you looked at more international data, the 4% rule worked only about two-thirds of the time internationally, whereas in U.S. data, it, it worked 100% of the time. And I think with the low interest rate environment that we have now, along with the high stock market valuation levels we see now, that international experience is probably a more reliable predictor of what today's retirees should be thinking about rather than what the 4% rule does is it extrapolates the 20th century United States and says the 20th century U.S. will be repeated for retirees today. And that that's on the optimistic side, not to be pessimistic about the U.S., but it's just the 20th century U.S. was a really remarkable period in world history. The U.S. became the world's leading superpower. And if you just reflect on the lower interest rates and so forth, I think it's meaningful to make your estimates more in terms of an international average rather than just the U.S. data. So should the average person use 3.5% or 3%? Or I mean, there's a lot of factors, of mm-hmm. course, but just talking about Mr. Joe Average. Well, I think if you want to keep most of the assumptions of the 4% rule, and that would include the 50 to 75% stocks, the 30 years, the inflation-adjusted spending, 
the idea of having a high chance that your plan will work and you won't run out of money, I think 3% is a lot more realistic than 4%, primarily due to the low interest rate environment, which hasn't been tested. Right. Well, and how Al and I look at it, or maybe how I look at it, and maybe you can agree with me, Dr. File, because you've agreed with everything <laughs> that I've said so far today, is that I think the 4% or 3% rule, whatever that you want to call it, is a really good stepping stone to figure out, hey, are you close with the amount of money that you have saved for you to be able to retire? Because you're probably well aware that people retire and they think that they can spend a certain dollar figure with a certain asset base, and they are way off base. You know, I, I have a hundred thousand dollars, and I think that I can, you know, take a ten percent distribution from that each year at age sixty-five because, on average, the stock market has done ten percent. So, I think the four percent rule—if they just, I guess, reverse engineer it, as you said, hey, I want to spend forty thousand dollars a year, and you know, multiply that by twenty-five or divide it by four percent, I need a million dollars. So at least that gets me in the ballpark of how much money that I should have as a nest egg once I retire. But then once I retire, I, I don't think the 4% rule or 3% rule really, you've got to you know, chuck and jive a little bit because markets are going to happen, life is going to happen, things are going to change. And so I think it's based on, you know, it's not a strict rule once you start taking distributions. I think it's a really good rule to help individuals figure out, all right, well, am I close to the nest egg that I need? But once they retire, I don't know how applicable it is. Right. Yeah, I can agree with that. That's certainly 4% is a lot more realistic than 10%. No matter how you look at it, 10%, you're going to have a good shot of running out of money within 10 or 15 years. But uh, yeah, absolutely. It's just people need to maintain some degree of flexibility and being flexible helps a lot. If you can just reduce your spending a little bit when, when markets aren't doing as, as well as you hoped, that helps you avoid selling assets at a loss, and that helps manage sequence risk, and that allows you to use a higher spending rate at the beginning of retirement than otherwise. Or if you use a reverse mortgage, for example, as that buffer asset, you can use a higher spending rate potentially because you can you know that occasionally you can just cover some of your spending from this resource outside of your investment portfolio that's not losing value when your investment portfolio goes down. So with some degree of flexibility there, whether it's just changing your spending level or having some sort of buffer asset to draw from, yeah, you, you can be more comfortable. The 4% rule actually is the strategy that creates the most sequence risk because you never adjust your spending based on how your portfolio is doing other than dropping your spending to zero once your portfolio hits zero. Otherwise, you're always just spending at the same level and, and playing a game of chicken where if your portfolio is losing value, you never change your spending at all. You never reduce it. And, and that creates the most sequence risk. If you can make some spending reductions, it goes a long way towards helping that plan. And I think the opposite is true. And I think you've, you've done some study on this as well is that some individuals say, hey, when I first the first few years of retirement, I want to spend a little bit more. Uh, I want to go on more trips or do different things or spoil the grandkids. But then as I age, I feel that my spending is going to particular, you know, it's going to go down. And so, you know, it, it's just really taking a look at what the goal of the client is and figuring out exactly what's feasible and then making sure that they do the right actions at the right time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's where if you're working with a financial planner, they all now have software that will you'll be able to model those types of scenarios where the 4% rule does just assume your spending is always growing with inflation. But if you think, well, I want to spend a little bit more in the first few years and then 
After that, I want to cut. I'm willing to cut my spending for a while. That's a scenario not specifically designed for the four percent rule, but it's easy enough to to model and test, and that the financial planning software can do that as long as you've got a good advisor and and the the assumptions in the software about market returns are realistic and not overly optimistic, which sometimes happens. But uh, then you you can still get a pretty good idea about those sorts of strategies, and it it can be okay to spend more early on because you have this built-in understanding that you're going to reduce that spending later on. And that's a different assumption pattern. We're talking to Dr. Wade Fowle. Um, I know you're a busy guy. We really appreciate your time today. You can find him at retirementresearcher.com, retirementresearcher.com. So he can continue his quest to write more books that I'll end up purchasing <laughs> more copies of. Um, what's the other two books about? The two that are still coming, the, the next one's on annuities and insurance and how pooling risk through insurance can also contribute to, along with investments. So it's bringing the power of insurance and investments together in a complete strategy. And then the final book after that will be more of a putting everything together in a more simplified, and I'm thinking a question and answer format of, of really going through the full retirement plan, also adding more about Social Security and Medicare and estate planning and taxes and everything else. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Wade. Um, it's it's always a pleasure talking to you. And again, you can find uh, Dr. Wade Powell's work at retirementresearcher.com. If you missed the first portion of our interview with Dr. Wade Fowle on how a reverse mortgage can help protect your portfolio in retirement, go to yourmoneyyourwealth.com and search for Wade Fowle. That's P-F-A-U. While you're there, listen to the latest episodes of the podcast, read the transcripts and show notes, and learn how to defeat financial failure, become a better investor, and find out whether or not you can successfully time the market. Next week, we'll be talking about annuities and insurance, so subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com so you don't miss a thing. Now, let's get to the email bag. If you've got a question for Joe and Big Al, email it to info at purefinancial.com or call 888-994-6257. This is... Um Washington, D.C. Wow, listeners all across the country now, right? I'm 57, yo, <laughs> years you're, of age. Years. Yeah, I was wondering what that meant, Y-O-A. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all I got was year old. I didn't know what the A was. 57, yo, yo. Yeah. Years of age is what that means. He's a Fed employee. Okay. Now. Okay. Uh, plans to retire at age 70. He's got about 140. But $35,000 gross annual salary, uh, which will continue to grow. He's got about $145,000 in debt uh, with $100,000 of student loans. He only has about $20,000 in his TSP. So he goes, hey, I stopped retirement investing to pay off debt, but concern, I'm missing free matching funds. Dave uh, Dave Ramsey says, pay off the debt, then max out retirement savings. But I'm concerned about time. Okay. What do you think? Are you going to agree with your boy, uh, Dave? Dave, Davey Ramsey? No, I'm going to disagree. Well, let me explain. Dave Ramsey has this this approach of how you pay things off. So he says, get a thousand dollar emergency fund. That's number one. And then number two is you're a big follower of Dave Ramsey. Yeah, well, I I I, I got it to memory. Yeah. And the second thing he says is you, you drink that Kool Aid. I do. Pay pay off uh, pay off all your debt. Okay. Okay. And then the third thing you do is then you go to your 401k and IRAs and, and max that out. Okay. Then the fifth thing that you do is you set you make sure you set up a um, uh, college education fund for your kids. And the fifth. What if you don't have kids? 
Well, then you don't. Then you can skip that one. You can go to number five, and number five is uh, if you still have money, uh, then you can you can pay down your mortgage. Mm. That's his order, and he's very specific. You do one and then the other. You don't do all at the same time. I don't agree with Dave Ramsey at all. Well, I don't agree with that either. And the and the main reason is the matching funds. In other words, you put in a dollar, and the feds match a dollar, and so that's that's free money. And so I, I I would say a more balanced approach in general works works better. I I mean that's it's a lot of student loan debt for someone who is fifty seven, uh, which is um, you know that gonna have to tackle that. But uh, what do you think? It's his kids. University of uh, Colorado, that's, potentially. Yeah, 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 in Boulder. Is, is this me? <laughs> Except I don't work for the feds. Did, did you disguise yourself here, Al, yeah. so you can answer your own question? Emmett, it, it's, it's, you're right. You, I've found out. It's me. I, instead of saying I'm financial planner, I <laughs> work for the government. I only have 20000 saved in my TSP. But I work for the feds, Joe, and okay. I'm going to get a nice big pension plan. You got so, hundred k in student loans. So, yeah. you know, so, I don't know. He probably, maybe it's his, his own, it's his kids. It could be, we've seen, you know, all over the board. Oh, yeah, we have. A lot of um, retirees now, their Social Security is getting withheld because of student right, loan debt. Right, right. Yeah. They co-sign for kids or grandkids. Yeah, and, and typically with student loans, the, the student first gets the loans but only can borrow so much, and right. then, then it goes to a parent loan, parent plus, or private loan or something like that. And so that's in the parent's name, and I would agree. That's probably what this is. So a few different unknowns here is that he, there's still plenty of time uh, for him to retire. He's looking at retiring at 70. He works for the federal government, so there's going to be a pension uh, plus Social Security. So guessing at $135,000 of income, his Social Security at age 70 is probably going to re- be around 35, 40 grand. Yeah. And then his pension, depending on how many years that he worked for the federal government, he's probably in, you know, the. It, I don't know, maybe another $20,000 of pension? Yeah, it just depends how many years. But, I mean, if I'm, if I'm guessing. Yeah, if you're guessing. So, so, so let's say $60,000 of income. Yeah, 50, 60 grand. Right? right? And so that's not bad because if I'm if he's making 140 he's halfway home. He's got $20,000. He needs to get, um, and he's got 13 years to save. Right. And I understand his stress points. is like, man, I'm putting all this money towards my, my debt because Ramsey's telling me to do so. But he's got to look at both sides of the coin. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And he's living in Washington, D.C., which is a very expensive area. Right. And, and presumably, with let's just call it $60,000 of fixed income uh, over and above savings, then uh, he could potentially retire to a little cheaper area, maybe over in Virginia or, or who, sure. who knows. Right? But the, 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 here's the point, I think, is that there's a little bit more planning than these stupid rules of thumb. Right. It's like, all right, well, here, if, if he's spending $70,000 a year, Right. Let, let's just say living expenses is seventy grand. Right. And if I'm looking at seventy thousand dollars, well, he's going to have roughly fifty or sixty thousand dollars of fixed income. So he needs another ten thousand dollars to come from his portfolio. Sure. He's got twenty thousand bucks, so he needs about I don't know two hundred. $300,000 saved? Yeah, right. He's got 13 years to save 300000 bucks. That's right. not a huge feat. No, it's not, especially with matches. Right. Right? So you put the money into the TSP, you got 13 years plus the match, 
I don't know. I, I think he's close. And then you figure out what that number is, and then everything else you just throw at debt. Right. He can't forget about his retirement. Yeah, yeah. So you got you have to do some planning first, and that's. So I think you bring up a good point, which is these rules of thumbs are, are for when you don't do any planning. When you have no idea what you're doing, you know, like when you're when you're 80 years old and you should take 100 minus your age and have 20 percent in bonds and or, and stocks and, and right. 80 percent in bonds. Well, in in reality, that works for almost nobody. I mean, I guess I guess if you have if you do no planning at all, at least it's something. But usually, it's not the right answer, and that's the problem with with taking these really rigid game plans and 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 assuming that that's gospel. Yeah, I don't know. Eat. <laughs> that's what that's telling someone to do. <laughs> you don't want to starve, so eat. Okay, well, I'm gonna have you know anything. You know, well, Ramsey would say eat rice and beans sure. till the 145 is gone, <laughs> which, which actually is plant based food. It's actually not that bad for you <laughs> if you want to get into it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> so <clears throat> hopefully that helps. Um, I would not think all is lost. Um, you're probably freaking a little bit that you. Well, but at the end of the day, 145 thousand bucks is not a ton of debt. No, it's it's not, and you've got a good salary. Right. And I, I know you're living in an expensive area, but uh, there's probably some ways to you know trim a couple things. Yeah, you know, I think a really, really, really good goal is to is to obviously put enough into your TSP for, to cover the match. Make sure you're getting the match, and then try to work it out so that you're saving enough. As you said, Joe, whatever your fixed income need is, you kind of do that math, and then also try to figure it out where you you try to get that debt paid off by age seventy, and then you're in great shape. Totally, really good shape. Uh, this is kind of a long one. But, <laughs> you want to get uh, into this one? Hello there. That's how it starts, right? I have a question about how to set up the correct asset allocation when a huge amount of our assets are in rental real estate. I've seen countless recommendations of having a diversified asset allocation, but have not seen any that incorporates rental real estate into it. We don't have any bonds in our asset allocation because of our huge amount of rental real estate in our portfolios. Here's our current breakdown. You ready for this, Al? Yeah, go ahead. About 9%, $420,000 is in international stocks. Okay. Uh, $560,000 small caps, uh, $1.3 million in large caps, rental properties, $2.2 million, and cash, about $200,000. So total assets is $4.7 million. Okay. We don't have any bonds at all. Is that okay? I'm 48. My husband's 53, and we are thinking about retiring early in about five years. So, what say you? Um, I, uh, I, we do hear that sometimes, Joe. That people like to treat real estate as a proxy. I don't really like to look at it that way. I, I, I would treat real estate as a as a fixed income source. I think that's a smarter way to do it, because. You can't spend your real estate unless you sell it, unless you sell it or refinance. The, the thing about a bond is, yeah, it's fixed income, just like real estate's fixed income, but you can always sell the bond, and you ha- always have access to that, that principle if you want to. The real estate, it's much more difficult to turn right around and sell a property. So personally, I would say, if in this, in this example, $2.2 million of real estate, $200,000 of cash, that's, that's a good amount of cash. That's probably a good, a good thing. And then we got about $1.2 million of, of other assets. I would I would do a well-diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds. As to how much you have in each, that's where a little bit more planning comes into, into, into play. But it would be a common to have 60% stocks, 40% bonds, at least as a starting point. Boring. But, but This is definitely not what Alicia <laughs> wants to hear. That is just so cookie-cutter advice. But that's the answer. No, it's not the answer. Yeah, it is. 
What do you get? <laughs> That's definitely not the answer. Here's what she wants to hear, and this is what she needs. This is what she wants to do because they're young. They're 48 and 53, right? The problem is, is that we need a little bit more information once again, because there's 2.2 million dollars in rental properties. Well, what's the cash flow on the rental properties? How much money do you think that's generating? I have no idea where Alicia lives or Alicia or whatever her name is, but 2.2 million. Let's call it what? What? What do you think is a good cap rate? Cash on cash. Well, if it's in Southern California, it's let's say three, three or four percent. So, right. Yeah. So if it's not in Southern California, we could probably see as high as five. Sure. Right. Yeah. yeah like if we're Arizona, it'd probably be five. In Texas, it could be eight percent. Right. Right. So, so, so on two million bucks, you know, five percent on two million dollars is a pretty good number. Yeah. Hundred grand. But it depends. It all depends on what they're spending. And, and exactly. You know, and, so here's what I think she's asking. Is that is to say, and, and uh, this is very true too with pensions. So let's say if I have a hundred thousand dollar pension, right? And do I put that into my asset allocation as a bond? Because I have fixed income, it's a pension plan to me, right? That's covering a lot of my needs. So does a sixty forty portfolio make any sense at all? No, it doesn't. Well, it, it, the sixty forty portfolio means nothing. <laughs> How you develop a strategy or a portfolio is going to be based on income needs, which we don't have. Yeah. So if you were listening to me, what I said, <laughs> I, <don't know>. <laughs> I listened to your answer. Which, you said sixty forty globally which, diversified, which, which apparently you didn't hear me say because I was falling asleep. So, so what? What I said is you got one point two million in liquid assets, and that needs that needs to have bond allocation. Well, she's to, got way more than one point two of liquid assets. Well, if you count the cash, I was leaving the cash out. Well, she's got one point three million in large caps. Oops. Five sixty yeah, in small right. caps. Four twenty in international I was stocks. Like, I, was, I thought that was one thirty. One one point three. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, it's a bigger number. But you, you so I, I will agree and disagree with you. So so the what I'll agree with is you need a lot more information to figure out what the investment allocation should be. Right. But 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 I, but I would not I would not count real estate as a proxy for bonds because you don't have access to the principal. Right. But I don't think. You want to use real estate as a proxy to bonds. Well, that's what she asked. That she's was the asking, question. <laughs> what she's asking is, do I need bonds? But what she's asking is that, hey, I have a ton of real estate that's generating income, right? Right. So if I don't need income from my portfolio, should I have bonds? Now, what's your answer with that? Uh, 60 40 globally diversified no. low cost index funds I, and again you weren't listening to my answer because what I what I, I, I basically said that I said I said a common allocation is that that's not necessarily the right answer right but but I, but let, let's say let's say there was no income need at all now or ever then okay. then you would go 100% stocks well it depends Right, because then you're taking a look at well, what is the portfolio for? Well, that's right, and and if, but and we uh, don't know that answer. Of course not. Right. But but if, but if there's never going to be an income need, it's for somebody else. Okay, exactly. That's the presumption. Sure, right? sure, sure. Now, if there is an income need, right, then you have to figure out. All right, because stocks are volatile, what is that income need, and have enough bonds to cover that for a certain period of time. Yeah. But if you don't ever need income, right, I, I guess it, we, we just need a lot more information. <laughs> of course. Well, that's true of every question. Right, exactly. But I think where my point was is that should you look at real estate? Absolutely you look at real estate in regards to creating an overall portfolio. Because we have clients that have a ton of money in real estate. So th their portfolio is going to look a little bit different than someone that doesn't have any real estate at all. 
Sure, well, I agree with that. Right? Yeah, so so here's mm. here's the formula, right? Which is you're spending $100,000. Your real estate is generating 80000 let's just say. So right. you need 20000 from your portfolio. That helps you decide how that should be allocated. Right. And, yeah. it, and it doesn't have to be real estate. It could be Social Security. It could be pension. It could be anything. But that's the formula. And, of course, it depends upon your age and depends upon a, a lot of things, really. But that's that's really how you, you come up with it. But what I, where I took this originally, because this is what I've heard, heard people ask me, is I don't think I need bonds because I got real estate. Yeah, and, okay. And, well, and, I disagree with that. Right? And I yeah. agree with you. Yeah, you agree with me on that point. Yes. Right. Because it's fixed income, it's not a proxy for a bond in terms of, of how we think of bonds. And the main difference to me, yeah, they both have fixed income, but the bonds you can easily sell to generate principal, real estate you cannot. Totally agree. Finally. <laughs> I totally agree with that. Glad they got through that. If you'd like to see if you can get Joe and Big Al to argue over your portfolio, or even if you've got a less explosive money question, email info at purefinancial.com. But since the fellas rarely get enough information in an email, maybe you best call 888-994-6257. You can ask your money question live on Your Money, Your Wealth, and Joe and Al can get all the information they need to give the best advice they can. Though I can't guarantee it won't still turn into a debate. But hey, two financial minds duking it out. That's half the fun of listening to this podcast, right? Call 888-994-6257 and leave your question in a voicemail or email info at purefinancial.com. That's 888-994-6257 or info at purefinancial.com. I got some stuff for you to do with IRAs for the rest of 2018, Alan. Oh, you do? Okay. Few things. If you haven't done any type of retirement planning, tax planning, or IRA, individual retirement account planning, here's a couple of things to consider. Number one, uh, make IRA contributions now. The best long-term strategy is maximizing IRA wealth right now. So contributions for 2018. Yes, you can make those contributions for 2018 now rather than waiting until April 15th of 2019. Because, you know, if we have a good end of 2018, all of that growth is in the overall retirement account. Yep. Especially if it's in a Roth. Especially. So it says, uh, let's, uh, number two was make gifts to fund children's IRAs early. Okay. Have you ever funded a kid's IRA? Um, I, yeah, I have. I, we did uh, $500 for Rob. Don't they have that? So there's certain custodians that will not do that and some will with um, minors. Yeah. Uh, but they said a child's IRA stands to earn the longest period of compounding investment returns uh, because they're children, right? <laughs> they're, they have more time. You mean, you mean they, they'll probably live longer than, say, you who's... Okay. Uh, number three, plan a backdoor Roth IRA contribution. Um, Al, what's a backdoor Roth? Well, that's when your income is too high to do a regular Roth contribution. You can, if you don't have an existing IRA, you can you can contribute to an IRA. You don't take a deduction, but then you turn right around and convert that. And since you did not get a deduction, it, it goes into the Roth tax free. A um, couple of different rules there too. You got the pro rata and aggregation rules. So you want to make sure that you understand those two rules. So if you have other IRAs, they they're going to take a look at the aggregation. Uh, the aggregate of all of your IRAs. Sure. 
Um, As if there was one IRA. If, yes. So even though you have one at Vanguard, one at Fidelity, one at TD, Ameritrade, and one at Charles Schwab. Yeah. So if you have a million dollars in an IRA and you do this, then you, it's it's like five thousand dollars into a million, whatever that. That's a low, that's a half half a percent. Right. Right. That that's the only part that's going to be tax free. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. And, and some people think I can just set up a new IRA somewhere else. Yes. Because it's not tainted with this other one. But the aggregation rule says no. You got to look at them as one. Yeah. The IRS understands how much money that you have in all your IRAs. So they they actually they they learn about that every year because it's disclosed on a on a form. Yes. The fifty four ninety eight. Yeah, 5498 form. Um, all right. Another one is correctly project the income tax on a Roth co- conversion. So right. this has changed a little bit. It has. Um, in regards to Roth conversions, a conversion is taking money from your standard retirement account. So your 401k IRAs, 403bs, that is going to come out ordinary income tax. But <clears throat> a strategy that a lot of you have utilized if you listen to the show for any period of time is to take money from the retirement account and convert it to a Roth. The reason why you would want to do that is then all future growth of that account will never, ever be taxed again. So right now, Al and I believe that this is a phenomenal opportunity for a lot of you because we're in historically almost all-time low tax rates. Yeah, and and for example, if you're married, the 24% tax bracket goes to $315,000 of taxable income. Single is half of that, one fifty-seven. And Altman, alternative minimum tax, is not affecting anybody. There are very, very, very few people this year. So it's actually a, it's a cheap tax this year. We, we talk about doing Roth conversions when taxes are on sale. Well, folks, they're on sale right now. Right. And so now you're paying tax at these lower rates, potentially, depending on your circumstance, of course. And then the money now sits in the Roth, and for you'll never pay tax on those dollars again. You put $10,000 into a Roth IRA, pay a few thousand dollars in taxes here, but that 10000 grows to 15, 20, 25,000, 30 grand, whatever the number is, you pull that money out, you'll never be taxed on those dollars again. The change in Roth conversions is that Recharacterizations. Yeah. In other words, you, you used to be able to do a Roth conversion and then change your mind up until the filing date in the following year, April 15th, or if you extend actually October 15th, but that's gone. Now you can no longer do any kind of recharacterization. So you have to be more careful when you convert because you can't really fix it up. If you convert too much, too bad. You're in a higher tax bracket. So what, what we're doing, Joe, is in a lot of cases, we're doing our Roth conversions towards the, year, the end of the year when we know more about people's income. Or in some cases, if their income's relatively steady, maybe we'll do at the beginning of the year, we'll do a partial conversion, but leave some cushion in case there's some extra income. And then, and then in November, December, do a little bit more conversion, as long as it's in the calendar year. Absolutely. Um, that's, a, I think, a, the, the best strategy. So you're because the time value of money is important. The sooner I, that you get the money in the Roth, the better. Yeah. The, the only time where you wouldn't do that is if you're a business owner and you have no idea. No idea. You're and clueless. so then you got to wait till November, December to see what the amount, the appropriate amount is for you. Right. It's like, um, you know, we've had a pretty steady year, but you have this contract looming that could either hit or not hit. Right. <laughs> then yeah. you just wait. Right. Um, so a few other things here. Let's see. Roll funds uh, to a 401k uh, from an IRA to reduce tax on a Roth conversion. 
What do you think they're talking about there? They're talking about the backdoor Roth. You got it. Right? Because what, what we're saying is that when you do a backdoor Roth, you, put, you, you contribute to an IRA, you do not get a tax deduction, and you can convert that to a Roth IRA without paying tax if you don't have any other IRAs. But if you do have any other IRAs, we just talked about the aggregation rules and how all this works. So but what you can do is you can take your other IRAs and you can roll them into a 401k. And guess what? The aggregation rule doesn't apply to 401k is it's only IRAs, and that's a SEP IRA, a simple IRA, or a regular IRA. Those, those are what is considered IRAs for this rule. So if it's in a 401k or a 403b, then it doesn't count. So you, ha- you, you wouldn't have another IRA, and you could do the backdoor Roth easily. Here's another huge strategy for this year. Um, QCDs, Qualified Charitable Distributions. Uh, if you are over 70 and a half, and you give to charity, you have to take a look at this thing. Yeah, I totally agree. And if you know someone that's 70 and a half and not listening, then you got to tell them about a qualified charitable distribution. The reason for this is what? Is that the standard deduction doubled. Yeah. So if you're married, your standard deduction went from 12000 to twenty four, roughly. Yeah, not only did it double, but you can only deduct $10,000 of property taxes and state taxes. And if your mortgage is paid off, and and you've got property taxes, state taxes of more than ten grand. You're limited to ten grand. You would have to give fourteen thousand dollars away to charity to get a single dollar of deduction. So what what we're saying then is instead of taking your required minimum distribution, paying taxes on it, and then sending it to charity, which then you wouldn't get a benefit, just do it directly from charity, and then you don't have to pay taxes on the RMD. It's a great strategy. It's it's actually when people find out about this, Joe, it's going to be used quite a bit going forward. So let's let me repeat what Alan just said is that most retirees um, might not file a Schedule A um, on their tax return. They might not itemize their deductions for the next few years. Right, given the new tax law. Given the new tax law. And because they're not itemizing their deductions, charities were all up in arms because it's like, okay, well, we're going to lose money here because... You know they're not going to give us any cash because there's no tax benefit. There's no tax right? benefit, but the problem is, is that the, the the code said yes, there's still tax benefits. You can still write it off on your tax return, but most people don't give twenty five thousand dollars to charity. Right? They might give three thousand dollars to charity that year. If that's the case, they're not going to receive any tax benefit because they probably won't file a Schedule A. Right. And again, it's because the standard deduction, 24000 will be greater than their itemized deduction, which would probably be $10,000 state and local taxes plus whatever charity they did give. Absolutely. So this will just not even hit your tax return. So instead of taking the required distribution, you could take your RMD, Right, and give it directly to charity, so you don't have to pay tax on it. They get the money, and then so you you, you get a lot better tax benefit by doing this. So it's called a qualified charitable distribution. IRA planning and tax optimization, as you just heard, can be some seriously complicated stuff. Visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and click special offer for a free download of our Roth IRA basics white paper to help you get the ball rolling. Then when you're ready to make the most of every dollar in your portfolio and keep as much of it away from the IRS as legally possible, hit that free assessment button at the top of the page. That's yourmoneyyourwealth.com. So Joe, you, uh, uh-huh. so you're from Minnesota. I am from Minnesota. And uh, you went. You lived in Florida. You lived in Georgia. I have. And uh, now San Diego, California. Yes. Right. Uh huh. So 
Have you ever thought of moving to another state uh, more recently? Because uh, there's an offer out there this last Wednesday. There's an offer to move to another state and get paid $10,000. To relocate. To relocate. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, There's a lot of areas that is hurting for labor. Right. So this is uh, Vermont. Okay. The Green Mountain State. Huh. Right? So uh, peace and quiet, tranquil, beautiful. A little cold in the winter which uh, you've had some experience with. But this is Vermont Governor Phil Scott. He signed a bill on Wednesday that will pay people $10,000 if they move to Vermont and work remotely for an employer out of state. So they don't even care if you work for an employer there because I guess they don't have that many jobs. They just want people, right, for the tax base is is what they want, right? And so they're they're budgeting 100 grants for the first three years and then 20 additional grants to workers uh, each year thereafter. And so uh, $10,000 will be distributed to first come, first serve. I've never been to Vermont. Yeah, I, uh, I have not either. I have two cousins that live out there, though. Or actually, I, sh- I should say Anne has two cousins that live out there. Huh. So ten grand. Yeah. And you don't even have to work in Vermont. You can well, do you, a... Well, you have to live there, but you work for an out-of-state employer. You can. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's the requirement. Oh, you have what they have an out of state. What Vermont's now in the recruiting business? Yeah, they're recruiting people so that they they get more tax dollars, right? So it's a remote worker grant program. Got it. Takes effect January first, two thousand nineteen. Okay. It will help cover moving, living, and working expenses. Grants can be used for relocation, computer software and hardware, broadband internet, and access to a co-working space. Hmm. So they want. they, what this tells me, Joe, is they don't have enough jobs and people are leaving, and so they want more people to come back, and so this is kind of a creative way. Paying people to come live in their state, work for an out-of-state employer, but once they work in Vermont, then they're going to make money in Vermont and pay taxes in Vermont. I think that's the whole idea. Do you know what it takes to be middle class? Um, in terms of, of income? Um, or what? Income, house... Well, let's see. Income, I don't know. It's eight, a little 80, different. It's eight. a little different anywhere you you, you look here. I, I I got the answers for you. Okay, so California would be a lot higher, I'm sure. Um, middle class for San Francisco. That's that that tops the charts here. It does. Middle class San Francisco for uh, household income. The range for middle class household income San Francisco California. What say you? You got a guess? The range. Range. Uh, uh, hundred to two hundred. Yeah, close. Seventy thousand to two hundred three. Okay. Yeah. What do you think the um, average um, home cost is in San Francisco. Uh, well, for middle class, for, for middle class. Oh, for middle class. I'm going to say seven hundred thousand. Seven fifty. Yeah, yeah, cool. Seven fifty. Um, where would you like to live, Alan? You wouldn't want to go to Hawaii, I would imagine. Yeah, I want. I want to go to Hawaii. Yep. Well, how the how does Pittsburgh <laughs> sound? <laughs> I know my dollars would stretch further. Yeah, Pittsburgh. Um, Anne has a sister in Pittsburgh. You know what this show is called? Where does Anne's family live? <laughs> She's also got a niece in uh, Alabama. So, so you haven't done that one yet. Here's here's Pittsburgh, PA. Um, household fifty thousand to one fifty. Um, home price though one twenty five. Oh really? One hundred twenty five thousand. You could bucks. retire like a king there. Bakersfield, California is two hundred. Middle class? Yeah. Or that's been the to home. Bakersfield? That's the home, home or that's home, the income? Not the income. <laughs> income is uh, 50 to 150. Okay. 200? Yeah, Bakersfield. Sure. Yeah, my, my uh, uh, aunt and uncle live in Fresno, so we passed by there to get there. Okay. Yeah, plus, we got, we've been to Yosemite many times. 
So across the board, it's usually the looks like the income is about fifty to one fifty. You know, of course, New York, San Francisco. You know, they hit the two hundred thousand mark. Sure. Um, the low end on the spectrum was Mississippi, with um, uh, let's see, forty to a buck forty. Okay. So. Um, but yeah, that's middle class America right there. You know, I don't have I don't have it in front of me, but do you know who the like one percenters? What how much they have to make? Uh, one percenters. Yeah. Well, if you don't have it in front of you, how am I supposed to know? If I give you an answer, you're going to be like, "Yep, that's uh, not right. That's, that's definitely right." I'm I'm going to say the one the top one percent of wage earners, married, single. I don't know. It's going to have to be four or five hundred grand. Yeah, I think that from memory, a couple of months ago, I think it was probably five to seven hundred thousand, something like that. I don't think a lot of people make more than that. That's right. That's why the only one percent do. You know, right? and then they look at average. Well, yeah, you got and some people that make like thirty million dollars a quarter. Right, and the, and the truth is, in on either coast, it's a lot higher than say in Middle America. But uh, I think that was kind of an average five or six, seven hundred thousand, if I if I'm remembering properly. Well, I. You know, the top five percent was, you know, if you made over a hundred thousand bucks, right, right? Right. Because I think the average is like forty, fifty, right. You know, for household, a four, right. right. All right, that's it for us for Big Al Clopine. I'm Joe Anderson. The show's called Your Money or Wealth. Thanks a lot for listening. Special thanks to today's guest, Dr. Wade Fowl. For his books on reverse mortgages and retirement withdrawal rates and more of Wade's financial wisdom, visit retirementresearcher.com. Stay on top of your investing strategy by subscribing to this podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com or find us on Spotify, iHeart, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Apple Podcasts, which used to be called iTunes, which is where you can still find our ratings and reviews. Now, remember, if you've got a burning money question for Joe and Big Al to answer, live on Your Money, Your Wealth, just email info at purefinancial.com or call and leave it in a voicemail at 888-994-6257. Listen next time for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Seriously, we mean it. See you next week.